Hello, gatherers. Tyler here letting you know we have another event coming up in October. The Gamer Culture Guides and myself will be doing another Extra Life streaming marathon. That's 24 hours of intense video games. Extra Life is an organization that uses game streaming to raise money for local children's hospitals. You watch, you donate, and you help kids. What's better than that? Since we're based in Orange County, all proceeds go to Chalk. The event will be on October 17th from 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. And the theme will be horror. <laughs> Come watch us get scared and help save lives. Now on with the show. Welcome to the Indie Comics section. Join us as we take you through the pages of some of the best stories and art that is available in the comic book industry. From trivia to book discussions to interviews to insider looks, this is Indie Comics with Jeff. Welcome once again to another episode of Indie Comics. I'm your host, Tyler, a crusader for creator-owned work in comics. There are fine gems to be found in your local comic book shop, so let's go searching for them. And who is with me today? Uh, I'm Richard Starkings. I'm the creator of Elephant Men. Yes, you are, and we've had you on the show, and it's so awesome to have you again. So how thank have you, you. been? Uh, I've been very well, thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, so this is September, and uh, we've picked Elephant Men because, one thing, it's a very, very special month. Or special, yeah, time. It's the 10th anniversary of Elephant Men. Yeah, I guess technically uh, the 10th anniversary is next year because... Even, oh, next year, that's right. Even though we, start, we started in 2006, so you think 2006, 2016, that's 10 years. But, of course, it's the beginning of the 10th year. But, um, you know, we basically decided to pick San Diego as the beginning of the 10th anniversary. And we're in our last 10 issues, so it actually all adds up. Pretty good. So. Oh wow, that's awesome though. Like, yeah. That's oh my gosh. So um, well let's get started with the questions before I, I jump the jump the shark I guess. So what exactly is Elephant Men? Um, Elephant Men is it's a science fiction comic book. Uh, the Elephant Men are human animal hybrids designed to fight a war between Africa and China. A terrible and bloody war is fought. They're defeated, <laughs> rehabilitated, and now they walk amongst us. Yeah. You may have heard that on previous interviews. Yep, absolutely. How did you get the idea of the series? What inspired kind of the whole craft? I think, you know, anybody that's asked, you know, where did you get the idea from? You know, it's not like you go and get an idea. It's not like you are suddenly inspired by an idea. Um, I grew up on what I call pulp science fiction. I grew up on Planet of the Apes. I grew up on Frank Herbert's Dune books, uh, the Conan books by Robert E. Howard, um, I grew up on Star Trek, and most of all, yes. I grew up on Doctor Who. Yes. And, um, you know, so it sort of was inevitable that I created a comic book that was science fiction. And at the time, at Image Comics, there weren't many science fiction books, so it was a bit of a long shot. Yeah, ten shot. years ago, definitely. Ten years ago, I was kind of alone, and now there's like a dozen Image science fiction books. And um, He's a kitty I'm playing with. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you won't get much uh, free time with that cat around. <laughs> so um, I think everybody produces the comic book that emerges from them. I don't think you sort of get any sort of specific inspiration. And, um, you know, I've documented in the back of Volume Zero of Elephant Men that I grew up with. Uh, my parents used to come back from Africa every year because my dad had business in Africa. 
and they used to bring, you know, like uh, paintings of hippos and rhinos and elephants, and we have a cushion with an elephant on it, and we have carvings of giraffes in the house and zebras, and I didn't even think when I started Elephant Man that that was kind of in my subconscious. Yeah. But I do remember there was this painting called The Elephant and the Ant Hill Above the Fireplace. And Do you yeah, have the painting? No, I don't. There's a picture of it in the back of Volume Zero. I used to stare at that painting. I used to, because the, the elephant was looking right at you and it was a majestic elephant. It was painted by a famous wildlife artist called David Shepard, who's uh, like uh, extremely well known in, in Africa. He's, I think he's British. Um, and um, I used to stare at that elephant for long periods of time, just thinking, what's he thinking? <laughs> and, and I think that sort of sunk into my subconscious and Elephant Men is sort of a combination of all the science fiction I read, all the movies, the TV. Um, Blade Runner certainly is my favorite movie. Alien is a close second. Oh, I love you so much. Oh, I love Blade Runner. Yeah, oh my gosh. it's a great uh, movie. And I think also... It's it's a movie that sort of has a tone rather than, you know, Star Wars is a universe. Blade Runner yeah. is a tone. There's a reason there aren't like a uh, hundred action figures from Blade Runner. It's very hard to 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 grasp Blade Runner because it works yeah. on so many different levels, and um, that was certainly in my mind to do a comic book that had a lot of the qualities of Marvel comics that I enjoyed growing up, especially the Fantastic Four. You know, put comic book characters in a sort of Blade Runner environment. Ladrone, who did the first Hip Flask books, which was which are sort of sequel to Elephant Men, but came out first, okay. he and I love a lot of the same science fiction. And, you know, we he watched uh, Doctor Who growing up in Mexico. I watched Doctor Who growing up in England. He was <laughs> uh, inspired by Alien, uh, by Giga, uh, by the Incarl, um which was illustrated by Mobius. And, um, you know, he and I had worked together on a Marvel comic called Cable. I was lettering Cable. And uh, so cool. it, it was a sequence written by Joe Casey. And, and we just clicked on that book. We really just, everything sort of fell into place. Joe got along with Jose Ladrone, and I got along with, with both of them. And um, he was doing stuff that was way <laughs> bigger than cable you know so uh he and i got talking when he was working on that and he saw a uh, hip flask and he said i really want to work on that and at first i was like yeah sure yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you've got bigger fish to fry but he he did he he's uh, currently working on the last issue issue five uh, it's taken him a while uh <laughs> elephant men is nearly 75 issues and uh ladrone is still working on issue five of hip flask but eventually we'll have that too Actually, it's funny. My co-host Jeff was just telling me like all about it, and you know, I I need to jump into it. And I saw all the stuff, and I was doing research on you. And one thing, the art is phenomenal. He is doing a fantastic, fantastic job. And it's just like that is that is something that is so. You said it's it's a sequel esque, even though it got started way before. It started way before Elephant Man, and in fact, Elephant Man is prequel to Hip Flask because there are there are characters that do not survive. Yeah, Hip Flask. So I couldn't do a sequel because it would give away the ending do you have that in mind as you know as elephant man you know is continuing continuing on for 10 more issues the storyline for hip flask has been has never changed 
No, no, I, I know. I, I'm just talking about yeah. for elephant magic you're riding. You'd be like, yes, you ever very, get like that moment? Like, I really want to do the same. Like, oh, I can't do that though. It, but <laughs> I have done some of them. I have done because you know it's been a long time, and sometimes you've just got to push a character through an arc. Yeah. And that may mean that they change in certain ways. But I think what's interesting for readers of Elephant Men who've read Hip Flask is trying to second guess me, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm trying to second guess myself because I don't want to end up in a situation where, where there's a storyline that compromises the Hip Flask storyline. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in the latest issue that we're putting together right now, which is issue 73, there's, we actually foreshadow Hip Flask because there's... Uh, it's, it's no big secret that there's a time travel element to Hip Flask and we, we start to introduce that we retroactively introduce that in Elephant Man in issue 73 where Hip Flask basically fights Hip Flask because you have to do that story. yeah that's true yeah especially like in comics nowadays so like you know when you when you were writing for Elephant Man you know a lot of people you know they suffer you know being motivated and stuff like that what keeps you motivated you know I, I'm, I'm in awe of writers that can work with very precise story arcs and in fact um i don't actually believe that they do i think that <laughs> writing comics especially an ongoing series there's such a huge element of winging it yeah because what keeps you motivated is the artist needs pages yeah right so um i've gone from writing full page scripts for moritat 10 years ago to writing half an issue um at a time for artists like Marion Churchland and uh, the early days of working with Axel Medlin. And um, now I write pages one or two at a time just to keep Axel going. <laughs> uh, because you, you, you might have the, the arc or the, story, the direction of the story in your head, but writing it all down at once becomes harder and harder when your artist is constantly yeah. chomping at your heels. And, uh, you know, also... When you do your first year, you're not putting together trade paperbacks. You're not doing as many shows or signings. Yeah. Um, you're not working on other titles as I am now. Um, and it's a lot easier to just do the scripts. There are other things to do that are all about your book, but not about writing script. So Axel's always happy when he has like, if he gets four or five pages of script, he's ecstatic because he can actually see <laughs> the direction I'm going in. But over the years also, I, I never used to do thumbnails. And now I always, almost always do thumbnails. Oh, wow. Um, in my little script book. Because that way I can show Axel where I'm going. And I am keeping the bigger story in my head. So yeah. I'm not letting him drift off in directions that he might regret later. Yeah. It's not fair an artist not to have the whole script. They need to know where the story's going. Yeah, they need to get ready for those, yeah. like, the, like the big, like, two-page panels. Or yeah. like the, <laughs> I've worked with Axel now since issue 25. He did one page in issue 25, then he did a few more in 26, 26 and eventually he became the, the regular artist. And, um, you know, I, I think he trusts me, and I certainly trust him. Sometimes his note when I send him the finished issue is like, oh, actually, that came together quite well. <laughs> uh, you know, and he's, he sounds surprised. And sometimes I'm surprised. But to get back to plotting out arcs, um, the, the, uh, there's been like two or three occasions I actually did an arc. There was volume four, which has the uh, Razorback story arc in which we have a character called Razorback who's never referred to as Razorback except on a cover. Hmm. Um, but that makes sense when you read the story. That's sort of a um, 
a vigilante who's who's hunting down elephant men and and that I had plotted out as a I think it's a five issue and then there is uh 2260 book 1 which we called Memories of the Future which was not called Memories of the Future in the issues because I I am still winging it you still wing it <laughs> that was a story that I wrote as a springboard for a movie and that's issues 51 through 55 which is collected in 2260 book one and if you read that with an eye to a low budget version of elephant you can see what i did i stripped it down so there's only hip flask but yeah i'm so excited and i promise i'm going to read the, the thick first volume of this book i'm gonna do it so what should we expect uh something special for the 10th anniversary actual issue are you gonna do anything on like that one issue that you're considering the 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 tenth anniversary of the well what I consider the tenth anniversary issue will be issue eighty which is the last issue in which I'm drawing oh okay <gasps> oh that is awesome <laughs> and I just committed to drawing it because oh. I've told a lot of people <laughs> uh, so I guess I have to do it and I do not draw like anybody else well, you, you uh, on never, the book you never drew the, the any of the past stuff did you do any of the character um, uh, I've done one cover I I designed pretty much all the characters oh so, you did design yeah. them oh yeah. perfect yeah. So, um, and I, I have, as I say, drawn thumbnails for my artist and sometimes, you know, I put a lot more work in them than others. Uh, I drew a variant cover for issue, for the issue Man and Elephant Men, which came between issues 30 and 31. So I have dabbled, but, uh, I've never done an entire issue and, uh, I think this is my chance, so that I guess awesome. I have to do it. And oh my plus, God. plus, if I, you know, if I take a little time, it's not like there's an issue eighty-one, so it's not like <laughs> I'm going to trip over yeah, myself. Right. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I don't think I'll be charging Image very much for drawing it, so you know, it's, it's, it's not a budget breaker. But um, you know, it's, um, it's something I've been meaning to do, and I've done a lot of sketching at shows and. Uh, Boo Cook has offered to color it, so he'll sort of help me with some of my shortcomings. And um, it'll be a different, it'll be very different to the rest of the issues. Are you going to be, um, so when, you draw, when, you, when you're doing the art for it, are you going to kind of have Hip Flask in mind, like kind of that? No, not really. Um, I'm going to be drawing it the way I've always drawn, which is, uh, you know, my favorite comic book artist, cartoonist, is a British artist called Posey Simmons, who did a series called The Silent Three in The Guardian newspaper, which I followed for years. And then she did uh, serialized graphic novels, Tamara Drew and Gemma Bovary. Um, and there is a, there's a great collection you can get now online. Posey Simmons, all right. Posey Simmons, yeah. I'm definitely going to look it up. Yeah. I'm excited for this, for this issue. Uh, so my style, if anything, gravitates towards a Posey Simmons style. But obviously, because I've uh, drawn the elephant men characters over the years i'll i, I don't really know how it's going to come out but <laughs> i kind of have to do it and of course i'm, I'm sure you'll be fine i'm sure it'll be great yeah but, and i'm a lettering artist yep uh as well so i think there'll be graphic elements you know i'm also a big fan of paul grist who did kane and um jack staff yeah, yeah. uh and um i always think to myself well if i did superhero comics i'd be lucky if i could draw like paul grist um, but I like the simplicity of his work. It's very open. It's very stark black and white. It, it sort of has hints of Sin City, but it's very um, loose and I would say comedic. It's, yeah. um, 
even though Jack Staff is a superhero book, Kane is a detective book. I know Kane. I don't know about yeah, Jack. Yeah, he has a very British sense of humor. So it's you know, I, I, w- I would I would aim for those two and probably fall incredibly short. But uh, <laughs> you know, I can die trying. That's awesome. I, I guess we'll go back. How did you get started in comics in origins? <laughs> so. Um, my secret origin is, you know, my brother, who's 12 years older than me, um, collected Marvel and DC comics and some Warren comics. Uh, he had a little room in his house in Nottingham, uh, which was floor to ceiling comics. And he'd put very simple shelves all the way to the ceiling. I would have been in, you know, I'd been 10 or 11 when I started uh, reading comics from his collection. And the way he arranged them was, uh, the DC comics were on the higher shelves and the Marvel ones were on the lower shelves. So oh, that wow. kind of dictated which comics I started reading. And I think it was because some of the DC comics at that time were considered more valuable and Marvel comics were more recent, That's so they true. were yeah, less D- valuable. Yeah, DC did, I mean, it was like the staple. Yeah, and that was, you know, in the 70s. So, you know, when Spider-Man number one, Fantastic Four number one was only 10 years old. Even yeah. though they were expensive, they weren't that expensive. No, not at all. Not so, from stuff that from like tw- you can get from 20 yeah. years ago prior. That was. And he had, um, if he didn't have complete runs of Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and Hulk, he had Marvel Tales reprinting Spider-Man or um, Marvel's Greatest Comics, I think it was called, reprinting oh, okay. Fantastic Four. So he had a vast collection. He had about 7,000 comics total. I started reading... Marvel Comics because my brother was reading them. The comic book that really got me into comics was a, a, a book called Countdown, which had co- comic strips based on TV science fiction shows like Doctor Who, uh, UFO, Thunderbirds. Um, Thunderbirds ago. Yeah. So <laughs> that was in 1971-1972. And then I started reading Mighty World of Marvel, Spider-Man Comics Weekly. I started reading a newspaper strip called The Perishers. Uh, which came out in a collection every six months. Um, was that in England? or That was in England. Okay. Per- the Perishers were kind of like Peanuts, but oh. the artistry was much more sophisticated, and particularly the lettering was, was just beautiful. The way the lettering helped the storytelling and the gags in that strip sort of inspired me to try my own hand, and I did some Go- Doctor Who uh, gag strips, uh, loosely based on some Parisha strips, and then I started making my own Doctor Who comic strips. And I got good at doing lettering, so I started submitting lettering samples to... There was a imprint called Harrier Comics in the 80s, and I started doing some work for them, uh, unpaid. In very short time after I graduated from college, um, I got work with Lookin, and they didn't use my work, it was so bad and 2000 AD, and um, I started lettering Future Shocks, which is sort of their tryout strip. It was always two pages, three pages. Oh, cool. I lettered some stuff by written by Peter Milligan and, and drawn by uh, Brendan McCarthy. Uh, I think the first strip I lettered was by Jeff Anderson, and I sort of graduated onto other strips at 2000 AD. Uh, last one I did was Halo Jones, which was written by Alan Moore. That is pretty awesome. Yeah, at Marvel... UK, I was lettering Transformers, and I lettered hundreds of pages of Transformers because <laughs> it was our most popular strip. Do you have any of those issues? Uh, I don't, actually. Um, and I had some of the reprints, but um, I've just worked on so many damn comic books that I can't keep them all. Yeah, you know, understandable. As a, as a lettering artist with a studio, you know, there was a time I think I had my name in more comics than Stan Lee did because 
the studio was lettering so many strips and you know I, I was working I would do the title pages on almost every Marvel comic we lettered Wow! and I'm condensing 10-15 years of working comics into you know two paragraphs but I the, the key book that I lettered was The Killing Joke by Alan Moore and Brian Bolland because um, I, I was with Brian at a show in Birmingham and I said oh who's lettering that because he had the first 10 pages with him or 9 pages and um, he said, oh, would you like to? So he asked Denny O'Neill if I could letter it. And Denny said yes, because what it meant was that they didn't have to send pages to America and then sh send them back for yeah. him to ink. So I'd pick up pages one or two a week from Brian over the course of over a year. It was two years, I think. And I would letter pages, take them back to him, and he'd ink them. And um, because that book turned out to be such a sort of milestone when people in America, when I moved to America, when they found out I'd lettered The Killing Joke, they said, okay, well, how are you? You know, so I worked on a bunch of Marvel books, yeah. Sleepwalker, some Hulk annuals, yeah. and um, Avengers Spotlight issues. And slowly but surely, I, I um, built up a body of work and enough to start a studio. Yep, Comicraft. That is awesome. So you were asking about, you know, the origins of Comicraft. So you... The Killing Joke was sort of my uh, entry card, if you like, my sort of uh, passport to working in America. But um, what I could not believe, you know, I'd been an editor at Marvel UK for four years. I had worked on real Ghostbusters, Transformers, Thundercats, Zoids, Captain Britain, Doctor Who. And um, as an editor, you can kind of control uh, deadlines. So, you, yeah. you know, um, we gave our... Artists, we gave writers plenty of time. We gave artists plenty of time. We gave letterers plenty of time. And when I uh, moved to New York, when I met someone out here, actually, it was Mark Siri, who'd been an assistant editor at Marvel US, and we'd become friends. Uh, and he said, You should digitize your typeface. You should create a comic book font so that you can hire people to help you. And I always have to give Mark Siri props for putting that thought in my head. Yeah. And I was also doing these Anthony Robbins tapes at the time. I don't know if you know Anthony Robbins. He, I don't. There's, there's a Netflix um, <laughs> documentary on him, and he's sort of a personal power guru, and he, he had these tapes that were... There was always an infomercial at midnight uh, on American <laughs> TV, and, of course, I'd been watching American TV for two years, just lapping up its strangeness compared <laughs> to British TV. Yeah. And uh, my girlfriend at the time had done the personal power tapes, so she gave them to me, and he always talked about, you know work smarter, not harder. Yeah. And I was like, I can't. I'm a comic book letter. I can't work. Uh, <laughs> Too many managers tell me that. In my yeah, life. <laughs> I can't do more pages without working more hours. And, um, you know, when Mark Siri came along and said, you know, digitize your typeface, I was like, that's the way to do it. And um, cut that long story short, you know, by the end of the 90s, this was the beginning of the 90s, by the end I had 15 people working for me in Santa Monica in my comic oh, craft wow. studio. And we were lettering... 60 books a month not 60 pages a month yeah. 60 books that is and so cool though. between 1995 and 2001 we did thousands and thousands of pages of lettering and we got good at it we got good at digital lettering and now we have hundreds of fonts that uh john rochelle is the font designer that has worked with me for nearly 25 years next year i think is our 25th anniversary oh that's awesome Yes, I'm coming to the end of Elephant Men, coincidentally, in the 25th year of Comic Craft. And I'm doing a new series uh, with Tim Sale. <gasps> yeah. 
Oh my gosh, yeah. Long Halloween and Dark yeah. Victory. Oh yeah. my god, I loved him sale. We've worked together since the late nineties and um you know, he just finished up Captain America White and he and I have been oh, talking right. off and on about a series and I finally came up with something that piqued his imagination and uh, we're in the very early stages, but it's very exciting. It's great seeing, it's always great seeing new work from Tim, but yeah. but working on it with him as a true collaboration has been, actually he's coming down next week to visit and we're going to talk some more about our series. Oh, that is so cool. Uh, so... There's that, and there's also a series I'm doing with Shaky Kane, who's done three issues of Elephant Man. That's called The Beef, and that'll be out hopefully next year. So there's a lot of new projects that I've been working on, and of course it doesn't look like I've been working on it because <laughs> creating a new world is the hardest thing. And it I is. Got, and you know, even though it can be difficult to keep a monthly series going, it's a lot easier than starting a new one. Yeah. Anyone that starts a new series, and I'm in again, I'm in awe of people like Kirkman and Fraction and Remenda, who seem to just have an endless uh, pool of ideas. Uh, Brian, <laughs> Brian took, K. Vaughan, you know, he's another one who just seems to knock it out of the park every single time. I mean, it took J.K. Rowling, well, she was five years and she was homeless for three of them just, yeah. to, just to create the Harry Potter world before she even started writing it. Exactly. and But, you know, she was using with the structure of a school, which was a great idea, doing, you know, yeah. each book, novel being one year <laughs> of school gives you a structure that people are familiar with and um but you know uh something like saga you know which brian k vaughan's been working on since yeah. he was a kid you know um that is, that is a whole craziness yeah <laughs> but but you know it looks they, the people that make it look effortless have worked the hardest yeah you know just because we sort of think well you know they can they can do it just standing on the head no they're doing the work they're they're getting up early writing, throwing stuff away, deleting, you know, whole pages, whole scripts, starting again and getting it right. Well, he has to approve everything, right? I think like Who? Brian K. Vaughan. On Brian what? Vaughan. On Saga. Saga. Well, he's the writer. Yeah, but, but I'm saying is, but he is, I mean, he's the creator, but I mean, he does. Well, I would say that they're co-creators. I'm, I'm not oh, sure yeah. what their uh, written relationship is, but but that's the beauty of working on independent comics is that you work with someone who's got as much input hopefully as the writer has yeah um we're in and, sync with you <laughs> and it's a lot easier to be in sync with an artist when there's no editor involved yeah um so actually now that kind of you know wants me to ask you know you created comic craft and um you know which is really big on self-publishing obviously just like you know image everything else do you think that the independent um you know the independent industry has changed for the better now, because, you know, back then it was, you know, okay, we're breaking with the whole big image, you know, break off, you know, Silvestri and everybody else. Um, was it Silvestri Hawkins, um, Michael Turner? Anyways, all, Jim Lee, you know, when they broke off, there was a lot at stake. So they wanted things to be eventually creator owned. I don't know at first if they were. Well, let's correct your facts there a little Sorry. bit. So it's Jim Lee. <laughs> Jim Lee. Mark Silvestri. Uh, Jim Valentino. Valentino. Yes, Valentino. Todd McFarlane. McFarlane. Will Spitasio. It wasn't Hawkins, it was somebody else. Rob Liefeld. Who's Matt that? Hawkins worked for Rob, yeah. and he also worked for Mark Silvestri, still works for Mark Silvestri. Yeah. Um, but it was the six or seven, because Will Spitasio had some family problems, and he dropped out of the original yeah. group of image uh, creators, and, and he had worked for a long time with Jim Lee out of what was called Homage Studios. But in the 90s, what they did was 
create the same kind of books that Marvel and DC were doing. Superhero books. Yep. Um, Spawn was a little bit darker, more horrific, but it was still essentially a superhero book. Yep. Um, you know, Jim did Wildcats, which was a lot like the X-Men. Uh, Mark Silvestri did Cyberforce, which was a lot Cyberforce. like the X-Men. Nowadays, sales are much lower. We're not selling what Spawn number one sold. We're not selling what Spawn 50 sold. Nowadays, you have the singles market and you have, it's, it's twofold. You have the single paper issues and you have the comicsology issues. So there's a double dip and singles are always available in comicsology. And, you know, there's a lot of um, sales of Elephant Men that actually happen on comicsology. Because at issue 70, we're, we're not selling what we used to. Yeah. And there's a lot of competition, I think. I read somewhere that Image put out like 50 number ones last year. So you're oh in competition. Wow. You're in competition <laughs> with new creator-owned books. And you can't, you can't put out 200 number ones. You can't put out 300 number ones. What we have now is sort of a hybrid, I would say, between Vertigo and Image. Yeah in that the sales are more the equivalent to what a Vertigo book was selling in the 90s. And you've got to remember, at its peak, Sandman was selling 90,000. Yeah. At its peak, Preacher was selling like 45, 60,000. And Hellblazer was... Sure. And, you know, nowadays, a Vertigo book can't get the numbers that an image book gets. So what you have now is a readership that's m more akin to Vertigo, because what you've got to remember also is that in the 90s and the early part of uh, the 2000s, you, you had a readership that, uh, primarily female actually, who were reading books like Sandman, books like um, Hellblazer, books like Preacher. And they got used to the idea that trades came out. Yeah. So Vertigo's backlist, Why the Last Man, uh, Fables, has helped support a bookstore market that doesn't really identify your book as Marvel or DC. They identify it as a series that they want to follow. So I think that there's a readership that might be aware that Image publishes Saga and Vertigo publishes Why the Last Man, but they're more interested in the fact that Brian K. Vaughan is writing those books. Yeah. So you have, a, you have readers who follow creators and don't really care whether it's Image publishing or Vertigo because they're following the stories. Yeah. Right. I think The Walking Dead has sort of reached that saturation point where they've got, you know, shoeboxes with The Walking Dead logo on it. That <laughs> people will buy. And Saga has nothing. So the fact that there was two action figures and a statue, yeah. um, you know, people seize upon that exclusive. They want to have it. And it's a great property, you know. So I think Skybound might actually diversify more. You start, you start to sense when the market has gone quote-unquote mainstream when uh, that style in tees has a hundred walking dead t-shirts and probably based on the tv show yeah. but it's mass market and it reaches that point that we all want to reach as comic book creators where people are buying the towel with the walking <laughs> dead with daryl on it and they don't really follow the tv series they they know of the tv series <laughs> and they want to be connected with it they want something that shows them to be a walking dead fan yeah and i think you you always want to reach you want to break through that wall of perception where everybody knows what walking dead is but they they've not watched the tv show and they've yeah. not read the comic but you know of it you become not public domain but you become in in the minds of the general public 
zombies. Oh, zombies, <laughs> Walking Dead. Yeah. You know, in the past it was zombies. I oh, like baseball bats with barbed wire no, around it. Yeah, but <laughs> but it's not about baseball bats with barbed wire. It's oh, yeah. T-shirts, anything that's public uh, in the public uh, sphere, which is cereals, candy. If you <laughs> if you've got Funko Pop collectibles in the Seven Eleven, and I saw Walking Dead oh, Funkos in the Seven Eleven. Then you've that's, broken that's through. terrifying and impressive at the same time. You've broken through that, you know, I guess it's called glass ceiling, but you've broken through that membrane between cult status, which Walking Dead had before it yeah. was a TV show, and popular culture. But yeah, that's so interesting. I do want to ask, since we're talking about, you know, the whole independent comic scene, do you think that this is the golden age of comics? Because we have, you know, Invincible's out and now ending, which will free up Robert Kirkman's time. But like, there's so many, so many amazing properties that are happening, and so many things. I think it's the golden, it's a golden age of independent comics, and I do think that um, you know, you can't deny Vertigo's impact on uh, the idea of creator-owned comics because whether it was uh, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon doing Preacher. Um, or uh, Brian K. Vaughan and Pierre Guerra doing Why the Last Man. Um, they did create that niche that Image has capitalized on, and I, I regard that niche as being the library of books. So Chu, I think, ends with issue 60, and I, I think he has 10 or 12 volumes, you yep. know. So, Those things are so John Lehman has sort of secured a spot on the bookshelves um, you know, for however long that stays in print, that keeps selling. Um, Walking Dead has the spot on the bookshelves. Invincible, you know, all these books. I'll also even say, I mean, Scott Pilgrim only has six volumes and it sure. is everywhere. It's a perennial, you know, in the same way that Bone has become a perennial yep. in children's books. And that doesn't mean, you know, that they won't um, go away because everything goes away. I mean, there was a yep. point at which Preacher wasn't selling. It's a golden age in the in the vast amount of product, but oftentimes, whether it's Walking Dead being available in trades, hardcovers, compendiums, deluxe hardcovers, <laughs> and I think in Germany it's in a sort of traveler size, six by nine format. So there's God. many, many different ways of collecting The Walking Dead, and more power to Walking Dead, more power to Robert and Charlie. Um, so... There is a sort of hunger for quality product, and we do tend to gobble it up in whatever format yeah. you know, it comes in. So we sort of, there's an explosion of product. There's an explosion of independent books. Um, but I think it is part of a movement, which includes manga, because a lot of girls that read manga, when that started coming out in the late 90s, early 2000s, they were 12, 13-year-old girls who might have been getting into something like Fruits Basket or... Um, you know, one of those uh, series, and they followed that multi-volume format. Yeah, you're 13, and then you want something a little bit more sophisticated, so you jump to Sandman. Yeah, I have uh, a lot of friends who went from manga to comics. Yeah, you know? so they go from manga multi-volume format to Sandman and Why the Last Man multi-volume format, and then, well, maybe Vertigo is not producing the kind of material that they like, so they go to Image, they go to Saga, so they follow yeah. Brian K. Vaughan to image they follow garth ennis you know his biggest selling image book is is the pro Whoa. with uh, amanda connor and and jimmy palmiotti so which is a one shot so you know th there's books out there that 
Vertigo may have published in the 90s, but now Image is publishing them. So I do think it's a golden age of independent publishing simply because creators are able to get their readership without a body owned by Warner Brothers or Disney. Yeah. You know, and don't forget, Disney still has the Icon imprint, which published um, Powers, which published uh, Kabuki for a while, I think. Forgot about Powers. Um, so they were sort of a creator owned Marvel imprint that were base, was basically formed to secure Brian Michael Bendis and David Mack at, yep. at Marvel. Um, but they could still walk and take their books back to Image. You know, so it's a oh, golden age that. of, I well, would yeah, say, yeah. choice. You, you have a choice, and creators didn't used to have a choice, so they used to end up working on Marvel and DC properties because there wasn't really another option. Yeah. Scott Snyder and Jock are doing Witches now at Image. That's right. And you know, when I spoke to Scott Snyder, he... He was all about wanting to do uh, create our own books, even though, of course, you know, he, he was, he's been very smart to do that body of work yep. at DC Comics. Well, you know, <laughs> when, you, when you work in this industry, but, you yeah. know, you have to th think about what's going on. You yep. have, you know, one of the things that, that I've felt Especially recently... Being create our own. You know, it's like it all relies on you and, you know... Yes, you, you've got to work smarter, not harder. You know, in fact, <laughs> I've been doing fewer shows because I think there's so many shows now that it's almost reaching the point where people are just going to shows. We've created a new kind of fan that just goes to shows. They don't necessarily spend money at shows. Yeah, they don't necessarily up. get into comic books at shows. And one thing I've observed is the further north you go, the more people read. The further south you go, the more people buy the T-shirts. So oh, you, yeah. you've got people who live in colder climates who drink more coffee and smoke more cigarettes and spend more time indoors, so they read more. Yep. And then you've got the outdoors people. Or people are know, stuck in San traffic. San Diego. <laughs> yes, people stuck in traffic, so they're not reading comic books. No. They, they don't have the good uh, public travel transport system. That's how I listen to Dark Tower series. There you go. I was out here being in the car. I do have two more questions. Sure. And then we can eat. That's okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, one thing is, what is your favorite animal? Well, I have to say elephant, and um, you know it's interesting smart because creatures, so. well, it's it's not just that. There's something about elephants that um, people react to, and you know when um, I published at Flask, and the lead character, who is the lead character in Elephant Men, uh, was also the the title character. People said to me, "What's Hip Flask?" You know, and, or yeah. they'd say Hip Flash, or they couldn't get their head around. You know, it was a pun. A hip flask is something you keep yeah. uh, liquor in and, you know, put in your hip pocket. Um, and I felt that that was a great name for a sort of uh, noir character with a fedora. Um, so people don't react to hippos the way they react to elephants. There's something about uh, an elephant that we see our own humanity in it. And when I changed the name of the series to Elephant Man, I never had to explain it again. Yeah. With Hip Flask, I always had to explain. Well, also, like, you know, just changing the series name, uh, you also get to, like you say, it's a prequel. Now you get to play around with every event that happened occur that occurred beforehand, and now you get to create kind of a staple. Well, when I um, launched Elephant Man, I had a little subtitle, you know, uh, the, the World of Hip Flask. Now when I do Hip Flask, I have to put From the World of Elephant Men. So I've successfully rebranded. Yeah. Um, but the reason I did that was issue two of Hip Flask was called Elephant Man. And Bob Harris called me and said, that's it. That's it. You've got it right there, <laughs> Elephant Man. 
And he convinced me to change the name just by, by sort of praising that the second issue was called Elephant Man. And so people come up and say, well, why isn't, isn't he an elephant? And that, 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 that means they're already engaged. They're not saying to me, well, what is it? They're saying, why yeah. is it? And the moment somebody's asking why instead of what, you're, they're already engaged. So yeah. when somebody says elephant men, oh, so they're men and they're elephants, but why is he hippo? You've got a whole conversation. Yeah. So, you know, it's always about engaging the reader and doing what it says on the tin. The Walking Dead, it does what it says on the tin. Yeah. X-Men. You know, you've got an idea of something unusual. Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, it does what it says on the tin. And yeah. we, are, we do live increasingly in a world where everything needs to be in the title. You know, um, Doctor Strange. I mean, and there's it's a in the title, and that's the thing. Like, a lot with novels, where it's like sometimes the titles have nothing to do, not nothing to do with, but it's just, it's it'll be like Elephant Man, where it's just like you know why is it called that when the main character is not an elephant, and like, where you read a book where it's just like okay, why is it called this when it's not like Game of Thrones? It's like there's only one throne that everybody's fighting for. Like what? Why is there multiple? Even though that's but Lord of the, the Rings, Game book. of Thrones. You know, the, there's, yeah, the there's a certain vernacular in the fantasy world that works. Yeah. Uh, in science fiction, um, there's another, you know, um, Flow My Tears, the policeman said, is yeah. a the title of a Philip K. I mean, look at Blade book. Look at Blade Runner. Well, Blade Runner is not the title of a book. No, it's true. Oh, that's right. It's not why do the electric... title of a Philip K. D. Why, why do, K. What, what was it? do electric sheep... Do Androids Dream do Electric Android Sheep? Electric. Blade that's Runner right. is the title of a uh, William no. S. Burroughs novel oh. which Ridley Scott bought the rights to the title it was called Blade Runner a, a movie I believe um, huh. so you know but The Martian boom yeah you know it's sort of double a twist thing. edged because it's not about a Martian <laughs> it's about a human being but um, but increasingly in the world of comics you know I, I think Saga is such a great title because it's so open yeah and we sort of know what saga means it means this is going to go on a long time <laughs> um so it, it suggests family saga i think it's a great title and uh the last question is going to be you know what conventions or events can we find uh, you and comic craft at i'm going to be at uh long beach in so, mid-september i live in long beach that's easy for me <laughs> although I, I think i'm only going to be there on the saturday because I'm, I'm double booked on the sunday okay um and i'll be at thought bubble maybe just for half a day <laughs> Uh, in Leeds, in my hometown. I've done Thought Bubble like five, six years in a row, so um, oh, wow. I won't be missed because um, you reach a point sometimes where you become part of the furniture, and I don't want to become part of the furniture. <laughs> I'm part of the furniture at San Diego. Sometimes it's difficult to get attention at San Diego with all the media circus that's going on. Yeah, um, especially just like, you know, it's just so crazy now. Yeah. It's hard even to stop by a booth. But also I, I want to spend a period writing more and going to shows less. And uh, I've talked to yep. my friend Mike Mignola about this, and he's of the same opinion that... Oh, that small guy? You, you reach... That, that nobody? <laughs> just careful, <laughs> careful. Love Mike Mignola. <laughs> he's, he, uh, you know, he's actually doing some new series too. And, yep, that's um, right. We're going to do a book together. We're going to do a book about Mike. We're going to do, like I've done the Tim Sale book yeah, about Tim and his career. And I did a book about Campbell and his career. And uh, Mike and I have talked about doing a similar book that puts sort of his early years okay, I gotta, in perspective. i got to buy all three of those books. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, Mike Mignola is, man, I mean, like just my childhood. <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> or so, my younger. Or my... So, you know, as much as I enjoy doing shows, and I've been very lucky to go to some shows in Canada and England and... Um, all over the West Coast. Uh, I'm trying to do less. I do have some rain checks on shows 
But they're very draining. I, I, I admire anyone that does uh, a show in on their weekend because then sometimes they just lose their weekend. Yeah. You know, because you can't really stop working when you get back. You have to, you have to prepare for a show. It's mentally very draining. Yeah. It can be emotionally very draining. I couldn't imagine like breaking down a big booth and you're, after all that. It's not even about a big booth. If an artist turns up with a pencil and, and some uh, a drawing pad and they're drawing all weekend, that's incredibly draining. Oh. So anybody that does 10, 5, 10 or 15 shows, and I know people that do, Carl Alstetter is somebody that I know that works yes. very hard. And, um, we love Carl. Yeah, and he works he works yes, he at does. a show and he earns every penny he, he gets because he's then raising kids. Yeah. You know, and I, I relate to that. I've I have three kids I've I've raised over the years, you know, and um you know, they they got used to me not being at home at certain weekends. Yeah. Or going to England to do I think I did three shows once in England, four shows. Oof. So um but I actually want to do fewer shows and write more comics, so yeah, very admirable. I mean, I would love to get to a point where I don't want to go to too many shows and waste too many people's time. Thanks for tuning in. You can check out our other shows and offerings on iTunes and visit our new website, thegrandgeekgathering.com. <laughs> go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review us. You can contact us on our site. To stay updated, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and we stream on Twitch TV. To find Elephant Men, check out your local comic book store or Comixology or Amazon. We highly support local businesses. Amazon is not a local business. Don't forget that Elephant Man has been running for 10 years. Woo! Music has been provided by bensound.com. This show has been brought to you by the Grand Geek Gathering Network. Join the gathering. Have a wonderful geek and GGG! Triple exclamation mark. <laughs> this is Richard Starkings aboard the Spaceship Nostromo. Signing off. <laughs>